Learn more about the albums you love with Dissect, a music analysis podcast hosted by me, Cole Kushner, a lifelong musician. Each season of Dissect dives deep into one album, examining the music, lyrics, and meaning of one song per episode. We've covered albums by Kendrick Lamar, Tyler the Creator, Frank Ocean, just to name a few, and our brand new season just launched all about Radiohead's 2007 masterpiece, In Rainbows. Listen to Dissect on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, because great art deserves more than a swipe. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, if you can avoid time slipping, it's Andy Greenwald! Sometimes I feel in my body like time slipping looked. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look pleasant for no. Loki, uh, who is back in season two of uh, his titular series, or he is the titular star of the series. Say it three times and, and uh, the spirit titular shows up. <laughs> you don't want to see that. Yeah. Um, it's great to see you. It's great to see Kaya. It's kind of Marvel week on the watch because we're going to talk a little bit about the first episode of the second season of Loki today. And then on Thursday show, mm-hmm. we are joined by Joanna Robinson from the House of R. Mm-hmm. This is great. Who's got a new book about Marvel coming out. And we're going to talk to her all about like kind of like a more broad state of the MCU. Do you know what this is called when a podcast pivots to covering the most popular thing in pop culture? It's called a zig. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. So like we'll move off of 1980s English gold heists yeah. and into Marvel. We're zigging. We're going full mainstream core this week. Joanna's book is called MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. It's out October 10th, which if my math is correct, is tomorrow. Your math is correct, sir. Andy, how are you doing? I had a, I had a lovely weekend in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Shout out to uh, the Pacific Northwest. Want to hear some anecdotes, or do you want to? I hundred percent want to hear anecdotes. Obviously, we'll talk about the gold. We'll talk about Loki. We'll talk have... about Chris's overuse of the word titular. But let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about putting birds on stuff. Let's um, do it. So I have two things I want to talk to you about. Okay, one is Portland oriented, oriented, and the other mm-hmm. is pop culture oriented. Uh huh. On Friday, it was my wife, Phoebe's birthday. And I say happy birthday to her uh, publicly now. I I did as well. I sent her a text. Did you? Of course I did. She didn't mention it. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like it meant a lot to her at the time. (laughs) Um, Amazing. On Friday, we went to go to dinner. That was lovely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you get the, um, did you have them like bring out a cake and sing to you? They brought out a a fruit crisp. I guess they don't all sing anymore. They brought out a fruit crisp. And they brought out a candle that was in a rooster, like candle mold, which I thought was pretty cool. I don't oh. know why, but there was no, we didn't even have any chicken. But it was. It, was it wasn't still, like a small bird you could crunch like an ortolan. It wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like that. Okay. And then we went to go do karaoke. This I was interested in. This is one of those karaoke places where they got everything. And this and wasn't it, just the two of you, right? You went out with some local. We went pals. out with some 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 other other friends right. up there. So there was uh, eight of us. Did they ask about me? 
Uh, broadly speaking, yeah. Like in terms of my professional happiness. <laughs> like, that was the podcast that you do with the other guy. Yeah. And they were like, I was like, uh, it's fine. And um, I got to tell you something. Mm-hmm. They're going to write songs about the songs that I sang at karaoke. Really? Are you a karaoke guy? No. Uh, do you like participating in it? No. Do you but, like watching it, like being in it in the room while other people are singing? I'm out on fun. No. I'm have not. you ever done it with me? No. So this is why I'm interested. And I have a, I have a, I'll confess a, uh, my own karaoke thing in a moment. This is your, this is your time to grab the mic. Oh, okay. I was just going to say that it, I am a benevolent God when it comes to karaoke, uh, because I don't think about, you know, am I going to blow people away with my pitch, mm-hmm. with my undiscovered singing talent? It's mm-hmm. not about that. Mm-mm. It's about finding the song, finding the moment, mm-hmm. and bringing people together. That's beautiful. So it's kind of bringing that DIY aesthetic mm-hmm. to karaoke through song selection and performance style. And then I just went on this run, dude. And and, and community uplift, which is the third pillar of the hardcore aesthetic <laughs> that you, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It is true. I uh so I I had a uh, an amazing run of dancing with myself, Robin, slash the Phillies, yes. and dancing on my own, Billy Idol. Whoa. And I also did a little Boys of Summer, Don Henley, which feels very maudlin. Yeah. But among a group of middle-aged people mm. is quite fun. It's a little slow now. Is that all right? And then, you know, because you start to get self-conscious when you're singing, you're doing karaoke because you're like, oh, I, 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 take, I hold these truths to be self-evident mm-hmm. that this song is awesome and that everybody loves it. But what if everybody's like, uh, what is this one? Oof. You know? Right. And for some reason, I got a little shaky about This Must Be The Place by... Uh, Talking heads. It's, it's in the zeitgeist again. That's... And it is in the zeitgeist again. But sometimes I feel like you and I are a little too zeited out. You know, we're mm. geisted up. Yeah. And I was like, you know, these people, they've got two, three kids. They've got, you know, like their also, own. The David Byrne vocal, that's a different range. No, it's okay. Is it? Because there's a lot of gang vocals on that. Oh, okay. So you can just do kind of like everybody sings along on the chorus. It's a lot of fun. Do, do you swing your mic like Adam Lazar of Taking Back Sunday and then get the crowd involved? No, but I did dance with a lamp. Wow, I'll, uh, this is there is there footage of this? No. Um, did you did everyone have to put their phones in those little bags when they entered the, because of? <laughs> yes. My, what I'm impressed by in this, and I'd love to hear Kaya's thoughts on this as well. I I think genuinely that I could have a good time doing karaoke. The problem is because I spend zero percent of my life thinking about it or preparing for it. I don't have something in my pocket when I walk into that booth. I think I need to have a song that I know. You can, I can take it down I with. Can, I, can, I can do. Like, the last time there was large-scale karaoke in my life was the Briar Patch rap party for season one. Mm. And um, But you're in a position of, of sort of like, uh, like people look at you, they're like, oh, the old the principal. Well, that's why I couldn't do Dad, anything. Because yeah. I was like, they have to respect me for checks watch seven more days. <laughs> yeah. But TV's beloved J.R. Ferguson, for example, Jay, like, he's just having some fun. He's drinking beers all night. And then when they turn to him, he does the aw shucks. And then just walks to the stage with Johnny Cash in his back pocket yeah, and does right. walk the line. And everyone's like, what a hero. Right. He's prepared right. in the moment. I am not prepared. I should be. Kaya, do you have a song? Are you always ready? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah so I've done karaoke actually like quite a lot this year. Um, <laughs> I had a Kaya's karaoke. had an incredible year. We should probably just preface should, it by say saying. Kara- Kaya possibly has had no bad days yeah. in 2023. I had a karaoke birthday party. And you did? I did. Oh, sick invite. <laughs> I, she got my RSVP. She got my regrets. That is awesome. And I also... Um, and if I not fucking invited. <laughs> now she's hearing that you're a value add. I think next she time, thought, next yeah. yeah. I, well, this is... I, wait, I, I have a point to make of it. I want to hear. And then I also, when I went to Stockholm with some of the ringer, yeah, there was we, a did, huge karaoke. we did some karaoke. I did not do it there. Um, and you know what hits at karaoke is shallow. Whoa. By Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. See, this is my thing. I never would have even thought of Lady it. Lady Gaga with Bradley Cooper. Because to me, that's a ballad. To me, that requires a lot of good singing. Hmm. You find out very quickly when you're doing karaoke where your, key, your pitch is. Right. And my pitch is not um, the late Brian Johnson from ACDC anymore, which I used to be able to see, do. See, mine is more beleaguered Eagles offensive coordinator Brian Johnson. <laughs> He's not beleaguered. He's not beleaguered anymore. It was just a bit. <laughs> but 
this is a great example because if I were to go to say hang out, like let's say let's, let's say Kaya invited, let's say you. hypothetically yeah. Kaya invited me to do yeah, something, it's possible. And like Kaya was like, "Hey, all my cool friends, all my best and coolest. This friends. is this guy Chris, <laughs> who is our peer. And Chris shows up like Steve Buscemi <laughs> in Thirty Rock <laughs> with a skateboard over his shoulder." Uh huh. And I was like, "Do you guys want to rock out to Don Henley's Boys of Summer, or, Here's or the, thing. the Talking Heads? This must be the place. I bet we would find common ground on, say, Robin dancing on my own." The, the reason I'm pushing back is because I feel like this would be your entree to the group, even if it wasn't a karaoke party. Yes. If you're like, "What's up, guys? You want to talk about Don Henley or Lioness? Which one? Yeah, <laughs> There's only two options." So we, okay. But here's my right. thing. You know, you make assumptions about your taste. You make assumptions about what you like mattering to other people. And Andy. Yeah, that was our 20s. Do you know what happened? Mm. I think Universal Studios made those same assumptions about The Exorcist. Whoa. This whole thing was an intro? Do you see this guy? You should invite him. Look how great he is at conversation. <laughs> so last week I went on The Big Picture with Sean Fennessy. Is, uh, is that a podcast? And we talked we, about yeah. The ex- Exorcist colon believer. And we also talked about the horror movies of 2023. And if you're interested in such scares and thrills, I I recommend you check that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But something really interesting happened this weekend, which is that Exorcist, for the most part, uh, flopped. I mean, it did, I think it did about like, you know, maybe 31 million. And, um, but it felt like it was like DOA. It was like they were going to, it was was not going to be something that like had legs because the reviews have been, well, I'll say what I'll, I'll just recount a Scott Tobias tweet about the Exorcist reviews, which was when those Exorcist reviews drop, and it was a body falling out of a coffin. <laughs> Jesus Christ! So that's kind of where we're at with that. And Sean and I were like, there was some cool stuff about it, but we had like a lot of negative things to say about it. My point is, is that so Universal spent four hundred million dollars on the sort of franchise rights to the Exorcist to get the Exorcist bag. Yeah. Now. I think Deadline did a really good box office write-up where they sort of broke this down. But essentially, like you would think, oh, $400 million, does that mean each one of these movies costs $133 million? It's not exactly like that. In fact, this this first Exorcist film was $30 million, I think, to make, you know, in budget. But it was actually, a lot of the $400 million is talent buyouts and it's like franchise rights for theme park stuff and there's all of these different things involved. Because the money that you're talking about was not to make this movie, right? It was to secure the rights? Yeah, so here I'll, I'll just, this is the sort of most relevant paragraph from the Deadline article, which is, as we previously mentioned, this $400 million purchase by Universal for The Exorcist wasn't a scenario where the three movies would be produced for $133 million apiece. Some rival executives are under the impression that that's the, what the deal called for. The Exorcist deal was a broader franchise driver for for Universal, which included production budgets, a buyout of talent and rights backends, producer fees, rights to leverage IP across the portfolio, and also to drive viewership on Peacock. Exorcist Believer has a 45-day theatrical window before landing on Peacock, and David Gordon Green, who directed The Exorcist, directed the Halloween movies. The last two Halloween movies were day and date on Peacock, so I think that they were in the theater, but you could also watch them on Peacock. We also love him forever because of East Bound and Down and um, Gemstones. Gemstones. And, yes. Um... I thought that this was really fascinating, but because they they wrote a four hundred dollar million dollar check for something that maybe nobody's interested in, and mm-hmm. I have been kind of fascinated by the way in which we've arrived at this point with franchises and with long form storytelling and the idea of everything having a base or a foundation from which to build massive amounts of IP out of it. Mm-hmm. You see with the purchase of the Lord of the Rings TV rights by Amazon, the movie rights by Warner Brothers, the you know going back into the Harry Potter well by Warner Brothers. There's all this stuff going on. We've talked so much about Star Wars. We're going to talk about Marvel a lot this week. But it sounds like they basically paid half a billion dollars to do something where they didn't have a story. To say nothing of the fact that they didn't necessarily have a story that really needed multiple movies. Right. And... You know, when you see the amount of cuts and cancellations and layoffs that are happening in this business, do you think that there's a correlation between like the sort of uh, reckless spending on this stuff because you have to get the name Exorcist or the name this to get to start building something out of it, and then you find yourself so far in the red just as the production is started, just as this like project is started? Well, I think there's two issues at the root of what you're asking. One is. 
is investing in old stuff relevant? Mm-hmm. And that's the conversation we had about um, the Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. It's the conversation that we had with the people at Spotify when we requested additional years for our contracts and doing this podcast. <laughs> like, is there still, do, old, do the old guys still have anything to say? Um, I, I think that that is a serious uh I think it's a serious question and one worth exploring. I think people know from our multiple conversations around this topic how I feel about it. That like just because it exists doesn't necessarily mean that needs we need more of it. It doesn't mean it's good. It, and increasingly, it doesn't even mean that it's a safe economic uh, play. I think the other, to me, that what what the, the story you're telling is connected to um, the story that's been coming out in the trades since the end of the writer strike, yeah. which is you know suddenly deals being slashed. Um, shows that are either shot or mostly shot just being um, trashed. This speaks to me to a culture of fear and that people don't really know A, what they're doing or B, what people want, which seems to be fundamentally the job of studios and development executives. And the bill is coming due for extremely expensive mistakes and misfires. And I think that, again, like when you buy the Exorcist IP in a climate of, we need to fill these hours. We need to build our streaming brands. We need to flood the zone with identifiable stuff. You get uh, DOA projects like The Exorcist, like and like the Frasier reboot, which is yeah. getting uh, ripped in uh, its reviews today. I haven't seen it yet. Did you like Frasier the first time around? Yeah. Okay. I love witty farces. That's yeah. on brand for me, don't you think? Uh, but if look for me, no Niles, no life. Like I don't. I don't see what the show, frankly, I don't see what the show is yeah. without him. Um, but then you also see these things that, and there's going to be more in the weeks to come, um, prob, you know, potentially shocking ones about like, no, no, we've changed our mind or the new economic climate or the, the, or the concessions we made in this deal with the writers and presumably in the deal that will come soon with the actors makes this no longer economically viable. And frankly, that's, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. This is, these, are, these were mistakes before and they're mistakes now and there are scapegoats every time. But the deeper issue is nobody knows what to do and yeah. nobody knows what people want. And for a brief time, franchises seemed like the safest hedge against that uncertainty. And it, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that continues to be the case, whether it's a relatively august, but aging, graying franchise like The Exorcist or it's the MCU. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's there's not a ton of evidence. The Exorcist has a lot of um, name recognition. You know, I mean, yes. have you seen the original Exorcist? I have. You have. It's but a like, rare horror movie that I have seen. And what did seen. you think of it? I Just thought it was curiosity. real scary. <laughs> <laughs> As a father Here, of daughters. Here's my thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's not really like something where you're like, oh man, there's no holes in that lineup. I mean, there are several bad <laughs> Exorcist films, well, many of which have been uh, production disasters. And now they're like, we've committed ourselves. I mean, maybe they haven't. Maybe they're just like, it's worth it to us to have Believer going on Peacock and then be able to do Universal Halloween Horror Nights with the with Reagan from Exorcist but, jumping out at people. But like, it seems like a pretty high price tag for that, isn't it? Like, what do you? I mean, you 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 see horror movies and yeah. think about them. So yeah. you're the person. I don't have. I can't. I can't contractually have an opinion about this. But it it does seem odd to me that the Exorcist Con- your contract with God you the mean? contract I made with Spotify recently, where they're like, you can't talk about this. Um, that uh, The Exorcist is a classic 1970s film. Mm-hmm. It is also a genre film. And the fact that it is a genre film somehow puts it in a different category where there isn't enough respect on its name as a film that was one thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just keeps... Uh, and I know sequels came pretty quickly, right? When, when did The Exorcist <sighs> 2 come out? But we don't see... Exorcist 2, uh, The Heretic, came out in 1977. How'd that do? I did not see that not because great. I did not feel yeah. like I had to. Billy, our guy Billy Friedkin was not involved in no, that. No, John right? Borman directed that one, and I believe he had a tough time with it. Emphasis on Bohr, right? No? No, my guy John Borman, he, he, he had some jams. I'm just saying for that movie. I yeah, was sure. trying to. I was, this, is the, <laughs> this is what you're going to get from me when you've led New, our conversation. New York headline writer, Andy Grimm. <laughs> it's all I could do when and, we talk about horror movies. Emphasis on Bohr, am I right? <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. Nothing yeah. on this topic whatsoever. But. Um, no, I want to. I'm trying to get you to talk about. Poltergeist, that was one I liked. No, no, it's not even about horror. It's about the idea of, like, for the majority almost now, especially of The Watch, but almost of The Watch and Hollywood Prospectus, we have been both engaged with and, like, entertained by 
what if we have a, had a cool new take on this franchise idea? Where right. There was a part of this movie that if you just do the sliding doors thing, we can, we can make a whole other movie about this uh, or a whole other franchise about this. And it has been a minute now since I feel like anybody has felt particularly satisfied by any of this stuff. And now I think people are starting to vote with their wallets more significantly. I, you know? I, I totally and agree. Exorcist, there's a world in which the reviews for Exorcist Believer were dynamite. Uh, let, you know, there are some things to like about it. Leslie Odom is quite good in it. But it, let's say it was just like, finally recaptures the spirit of Friedkin's original masterpiece. If you're going to see one horror movie, make it this. Everybody goes out and sees it this weekend because it's almost Halloween. But I mean, from the second this thing moved off of the Friday the 13th date that it had because it was scared of Taylor Swift, like it just kind of felt like there was something wrong with it. And it turns out that there was. Well, a couple, a couple things. One, I'd like to apologize to John Borman, who's 90 years young, still mm-hmm. with us. He directed Taylor Panama. That was good. And the uh, Excalibur, which Hope is and glory. My, one, of my, um, one of my personal favorites. Is it really? Yeah. Zardoz, is that one of your favorites? Too? No. Okay, just checking. Um, I also think that like The Exorcist, again, it conjures up, that's a pun, right? <laughs> Feelings of like fear and, and you know, there's positive connections with the movie. But The Exorcist isn't Halloween. There isn't, the, the villain of The Exorcist is the devil, right? It's a demon named Pazuzu, actually. I just didn't want to say it. <laughs> Bring him. <laughs> it's not Beetlejuice. You can say his name a couple of times. Okay, it's but not let's how not, he arrives. Let's not push it. Just I don't. don't accept any gifts from people who have recently <laughs> visited archaeological sites. I never do. I never do. Um, hey, I was digging around in uh, Sumeria, and I, I found this cool necklace for you. I only, when people travel, I'm just like, no, no, please don't bring me anything back, but unless you go to a wet market. Like, I'm passionate <laughs> about local cuisines. So anything from there would be great. Yeah. Just don't go to any archaeological digs. I'm just saying, it, it does not seem particularly repeatable, yet they keep going back to it. It is not a natural... Uh, and also you said something like, do you have a cool new take on this? I'm not sure if that's what's happening. The other larger point here that I think is relevant as studios uh, try to obfuscate what's going on right now and over the next few months is remembering that even separate and apart from the strike, we're always on a bit of a tape delay mm-hmm. in terms of the content that's hitting our screens when it was conceived, when it was developed, uh, when it was greenlit. And this is one of those interesting periods, I think, where we are getting content beamed into our theaters or day and dated or whatever onto our streaming services that is from another world. Yeah. Like from a, an era that has so definitively ended and everyone's just sort of going to be shrugging and doing the best they can with it. I know I've already been harping on a movie we haven't seen, perhaps unfairly, but I think the Marvels is going to be an interesting moment when it is finally unveiled for critics and unveiled for audiences. I think your point about people voting with their wallets is really true. This is, I hope that this is not the same conversation we often, conversational cul-de-sac we often get into the with the, who is this for? Mm-mm, I think it's I really more, that. no, no, I know, yeah. I'm saying the opposite, which is. It's for me. Does anyone, but who wants this? Well, that was, the, that, that was the, my grand gesture about karaoke mm-hmm. was the disparity between, or the, the divide between people deciding what movies are getting made and the people who are actually like your your possible target audience. And that maybe The Exorcist, for as special and important as it is to horror fans and to cinema history, it just may not be like that. Like, it may not have a very high Q score anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like well, it, it might not be something that people oh, walk around being like, it's time for, I can't wait to, to really I, find out what Pazuzu has been doing for the I, last That's twice. You're done. John Borman made point blank. That's a great movie. I do not think it is a viable entertainment industry model to make people feel nostalgia. I just don't think that that's a viable model. I think you can get a certain ways down the road with that. I think that you can sometimes hit it once or twice. You can you can deliver it perfectly, like Top Gun Maverick, which I also think the success of that movie, you can't really separate out from when they finally chose to release it. That was brilliant timing and marketing, as it turns out. It was a moment when everyone wanted that, wanted to go to the theater, wanted to feel a certain way. And the lag time between something feeling fresh and something feeling nostalgic is remarkably reduced now. Yeah. So Marvel projects, like even we're going to talk about Loki, which I'm not going to excoriate. I mean, I I enjoy it for what it is. There are moments within Loki where the forward momentum screeches to a halt. So Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson can do Iron Man-ish banter. Mm -hmm. And they're like, look, look, remember this? Remember this? This felt good. This is what we're doing. 
I still think in the world of in a world that is fueled by people going to the movie theater en masse to see the same six movies a year that make a billion dollars, what is what are you buying with that ticket? I think that for a lot of people, they would say they want to see something exciting. They want to see something new. If you're not showing them that, what's the what are we doing? Yeah. How how is that model successful anymore? I, that that is that is the question. But I think part of the reason why we're where we are with that is because we are on Fast and the Furious Ten. We are on right. Where our new Indiana franchises. Jones Five with a with a very old man at the center of it. We are all at these the ends of a lot of runs. I, I saw him at at dinner the other night. Harrison Ford. Yeah. Did he fly or uh, his his jet was. I, uh, no, he did not. Was it he, on the west side? It was on the west side. Because you got to watch out when you're on the west side with Harrison Ford. Be, like with his erratic driving and no, flying? No, that's where he like crashed his plane into a golf course. He was walking to the restroom and seemed in good spirits. Were people bugging him? No. It's the LA way. You mean people other than me? No, did, like, did, were people like, oh my God, fucking, I love Frantic. Take my, can you take a picture with me? Uh, <laughs> so were you there? No. No, I just mean, the other thing about Harrison Ford is that he is a small old man. Yeah, you don't really think that. You know what I mean? He 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 looks great. He looks handsome. He looks well. He was ambulatory. Uh, he was fine. Uh, he doesn't look any older than he looked in m- many of the recent movies. Yeah, but he's he's not a huge guy. It freaks you out when you sometimes see stuff like that, though. Like I remember when I I interviewed Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a huge fan of his acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I sat down next to him and I was like, oh my God, this is like the biggest star in the world right now. Like yeah. I'm freaking out. And then I looked down and he was basically wearing like Marty McFly shoes, <laughs> like moon like moon boots. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> You're just like a weird guy from Santa Monica. Did you neg you neg his fashion? No, I didn't, but I really like it brought me it brought the temperature down. I was like, okay. You can talk, you can rap with this guy. Yeah. Just Mono a mono. Yeah. That means hand. He and hand, I are but... basically the same. That's what, you what you're saying. Didn't you interview him in a um like a airplane hangar that was no, rented it was for the in, event? It was in the basement of a hotel in Santa Monica, but it was we talked about oh, yeah. how he had his 50th birthday party mm-hmm. in an airplane hangar and Steely Dan played. He got Steely Dan to play his birthday. Were you like, that's exactly what I would do with my 50th birthday party too, if I had enough money to do it? And and that was a, a hint he didn't take when I was like, if you wanted to underwrite my 50th birthday party. Or we could do a co- Yeah, like you, yeah, exactly. Birthday party. Exactly. That's but now weird. that I've made fun of his shoes, I doubt that'll come to come to pass. Yeah, that's a shame. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I am... We can talk about Loki. We should talk about Loki, but I but I think this, this bigger question, like it, maybe this is a cross pod or maybe we just feed this topic to Sean and Amanda, but like I... What is the blockbuster movie slate for the next two or three years? Like, what's already been dated? And are they all blank six, yeah. blank nine? What What is this going to do for anybody? And we're so far down the road of committing to it. I think that I think that coming. I think that this summer changed a lot of people's yeah field of vision because it's like you come out and you're like, we had two billion dollar movies uh, of original material by visionary directors making movies the way that they wanted to make them. And they didn't have to worry about whether or not it would set up Ken World or, you know, the 14 Barbie spinoffs or, you know. I mean, I do think that the wrong lessons will be taken, of course, as they always are. I think that this has empowered Mattel to, like, double down on the Polly Pocket expanded universe, which I don't think is the takeaway for Barbie's success. I am curious, honestly. I don't know what anyone's thinking. I mean, other people than us have said this repeatedly, like Oppenheimer's the most insane movie or entertainment story of the year. Mm -hmm. That's close to a billion dollars. It's a three-hour biopic. That's crazy. Um, Is there any takeaway from that or is just just no one talking about it? I just think think that sometimes you get get somebody where you're like, it's Nolan. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, let's talk about Loki. Mm-hmm. Guess who's got two thumbs and like this show? Uh, this guy. Oh, yeah. Really? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Did you think you were coming in and we were going to go off the top rope on this show? No. Together? No. Big fans of Benson and Moorhead, the directors. So I've I uh, enjoyed their independent science fiction horror films over the years. Um, they had one called Endless. They had one called The Spring or Spring. Uh, that's really good. And they did a little bit on Moon Knight and have obviously been brought into the fold. And it's like, fool me once, fool me a million, million times, like when Marvel hires filmmakers that I like. But I got to say, I really thought that they brought a verve to the direction of this. Not that mm. Kate Herons was lacking in that in any way. Um, that made me... It charmed me so much that I didn't really worry about the fact that I have no idea what they were talking about on the show. Now, to be clear, because I'm not familiar with their short films, have they worked on anything Science, before? They're, they're features. Like they're, they're I'm sorry, full on, yeah, but I've not, I've not seen their films. Yeah. Have they worked on... Uh, did they work on season one of Loki? Have they, they did done? not. Kate Heron directed, I think, all of... Uh, I remember that, of yeah. season one of Loki. But they did do a couple episodes of Moon Knight and are in the mix. You know, they're, 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 they're now Marvel guys, I think. Mm-hmm. Or at least they they go to Marvel and and they can they can play in the sandbox. I thought they did a great job with this opening episode, um, and I thought this was an example of something where uh, the MacGuffin is basically the plot now. Like the things that you thought in the first season of Loki were like a little bit sort of fun flights of fancy that were the storytelling device to watch this guy deal with his like questions about his own identity mm. and like what his true self was are now essentially all of the show in yep. this first episode so it's all about like the rules of time travel the history of the TVA who runs it what pruning means like what's a mm-hmm. what's a sort of humanitarian way to prune timelines <laughs> like all mm. this stuff that came up but it was a lot of mm-hmm. puzzles tests challenges for our protagonist to accomplish so that he can get to his final goal, which is, I guess, finding um, finding Sophie, right? Like, I, I, That seems to be one of the goals, yeah. yeah. So what did, you, what did you think of the first episode? Well, I, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting, and this will probably be part of our conversation to this week, like... Sylvie, sorry, not Sophie. Sophia DiMartino is the actress, actress who plays yeah. Sylvie. I think this show has style i think this show has real verve i think it has some um, i think it takes takes chances and has fun and has a really uh developed sense of itself and i could say precisely none of those things about the last mm-hmm. few years of marvel and that's not a small thing to re- have the show return and have it look good and to have it look not just good but to have it look uh idiosyncratic and itself um, to have these sort of smaller decisions that, you know, that, that don't matter in the larger story about what we're going to do about Kang, but casting people like as that three panel of judges, you cast the Scottish actress, Katie Dickey, you cast the English actress and disability rights activist, Liz Carr, and then you have the other guy just being asleep. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. These are the, these are the, the seemingly small board decisions that in my mind separate art from nonsense, frankly. Yeah. So I was thrilled to see that. I was thrilled to see that there is a beating heart still in this. And I think that you're right. I don't know these directors, but I think that there's a there's a uh, visual just panache. Yeah, I thought that there was like elements of but, it. The the whole Marvel thing being like, you can Trojan horse in mm-hmm. all these different influences. And I thought like this kind of looked like the Hudsucker proxy. You know, I mean, it was just because if nothing matters, and I don't mean that like in a nihilistic sense, but I mean that like, <laughs> One character being like, my ability is to do purple lines this way, and I can do purple balls. Like, who gives a shit? Yeah, right. So why not have real, real tape players and Walkmen and flashing blue buttons? Because it all doesn't matter. So at least have some fun with it. I really appreciated that. Even the Owen Wilson spacewalk in the weird face-distorting suit with rainbow clouds coming off of him. Yeah, let's do it. Sure. Why not? That is different than what we've seen before. 
the but that's coming for me is that it, it was inevitable that uh, because this is an MCU project that the transition from this is a project about a character in a circumstance in a story in season one or in the first movie when it then becomes a vehicle for a larger story that connects to other things, there is just a slackening and a softening. And the amount of verbal nonsense said in the beginning of this episode was jaw-dropping. And the amount of just getting everyone really worked up about something that five minutes ago didn't seem to matter and I didn't understand it, and frankly, I still don't understand it at the end of it, was tiring. You know, I, one of the nice things about the first season was the ability to just live inside of it and to live in this world where there's this, you know, this, this very stylized headquarters for people who are doing a very specific thing that seems to matter to them. Loki shows up like the audience and it's just like, what's this about? Yes. Great. All of a sudden, we're now in uncharted territory where they're all saying, what's this about? And what it's about is the Kang dynasty coming in 2026. But let's see what we can do on the way to get there. And it becomes just once again, a, a delivery system for mixed results. It's a really good point. It's the difference between Dorothy first arriving in Oz mm -hmm. and making like the continuing adventures of Dorothy in Oz. And it's yeah. added on top of it is the constant, almost manic, like, are you in the future? Or are you in the past stuff? Now, there is a screwball element of that, which I think works really well, especially when they did the Kiwi Kwan OB scene. And it was like, do you remember me? And it's like, oh yeah, this is, uh, and he's like, it's OB. And he's like, that's what I call him, OB. That's my nickname for him. Like there was really funny stuff in yeah. in the, the kind of, like you said, the old school Avengers bantering thing. It does bring the story to a halt. But when the story is so confusing for, for me, and honestly, like it's been two years since Loki. Yes. Time travel is not the easiest thing to sort of wrap your head around because they're just fucking making it up anyway as they go along. Yes. And on top of that, you know, the the first season of Loki ends with this, Kang revelation that that this is going to sort of probably be the new big bad of Marvel that this multiversal kind of experience is the defining sort of storyline of the next phase of this of this move of these movies and of these TV shows it it actually felt like they were dancing around something in this episode and I don't know whether that's the Jonathan Majors part you know I don't know whether or not there's a version of this where he's in the first episode. Well, but he is. I mean, they can't do anything but run towards it. I mean, his giant stone face yes. is the central image of this episode and what Loki's running around looking for and running from. This is unprecedented, you know, in terms of the entire... The Marvel Cinematic Universe is not the Tampa Bay Rays. And not to minimize any of the accusations involved by making a sort of a facile comparison. But when a player on the Rays was credibly accused of things or got involved with the law, he was removed from the team. They mm -hmm. scrubbed his locker. Jonathan Major's situation is not the same. I'm not, I'm, I want to be very careful with what I'm saying here. But Marvel is, you can feel the machine inching forward as slowly as it can and they don't know what to do. They don't know what's going to... They, they have not made a decision. They do not... About recasting him, about keeping him. They have all the stuff in the can that is central to him. I mean, I keep, I keep thinking about that last image from the Ant-Man movie, which is just a stadium Kings, full yeah. of a thousand Jonathan Majors. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is where we're at. And that does inform our viewing of it. Um, and so, yeah, you do wonder if they did try to rejigger what the season was and what it felt like and whether he was he is now they did they push him to the end of this six episode season did they minimize him will they recast him within this show we honestly don't know uh aside from professional obligation would you keep watching this it's it's tough because i do love the style i like um the we should shout out the the production designer uh Kazra Farahani who designed the first season and is a is directing yeah. An episode this season. Uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moore are directing four of the six episodes. Yeah, they do yeah. one and then four, five, and six. I love Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson. Would watch them do anything. Um, Raphael Casal is cool. It, it, the, the casting, Eugene, Eugene Cordero. I mean, it, they have a lot of fun with that too. I, I love Sofia DiMartino in the first season. The, the bump for me is things like Wunmi Mosaku, who's a great actor as well. All of a sudden, she has to do the kind of 
house cleaning labor of the MCU, which is turn to the camera and say things like, thousands of innocent lives will be lost if we prune the variants from that timeline. Yeah, I don't understand like, why that's become like... Okay. I don't... I don't you know, you know what, for me, the, the biggest example of that was? Like, there's this fun set piece in the beginning where the time-slipping Loki jumps off of a balcony and lands on a space yes. car just like he had watched The Fifth Element once and then crashes the car into the room where Eugene Cordero is listening to his Walkman and then the car falls. And you hear people screaming. And you hear a crash and you hear Tom Hiddleston say, he'll be fine. And then you feel the internal note and the late period CG where then in the background out the window, someone drew in that car belching smoke flying again because clearly the intention was that person just died. Yes. And then they were like, no, we'll fix that in post. Yeah. That kind of like, we have to be good. We have to be aligned with the larger values of whatever our you know corporate project is. You can sort of feel that. Look, it is what it is. These are people trying to do good work. I mean, everyone's trying to do good work, but these are people who have made a, established a beachhead of something interesting inside of something that we no longer find to be all that interesting. Do you, I, I don't actually know. Hmm. And I swear to God, like I paid attention. I'm not really sure what the hell is going on. No idea. Okay. Absolutely. Like, so Kate Dickey and Raphael Casals characters are like, we have to have like a militaristic reaction to Kang. Even though Kang was in charge of us. Yeah. But they didn't know that. Right. Because there's and there's yeah. some mystery. There's like oh, like well, there, we all, there were the three robots. There was the but three then they knocked lords. down the wall and Kang is the wall behind the wall, right? Yes. Do you think that's smart to like build a mural to yourself, but then put a second mural in front of it? Like if you want to <laughs> trick people, just don't build the mural to yourself. <laughs> like how strong is your ego? You know what I mean? Like everyone here is operating under the the big lie. I'm more of a add me to the mural guy. Uh, right. You know. Right. You know when it's like Elliot Smith, and then it's just like me. <laughs> Being like, do you want to come to my 50th birthday party? You know, <laughs> nice shoes. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I, the, the other thing I have to throw in here that I found a little... Look, we're going to keep watching the show, but it's a little... That's what I was asking. Yes. We stopped watching Ahsoka. So I was just like, I mean, we, we can make decisions independent of one another. I'm going to keep watching. Well, apparently we're making more and more. <sighs> happy Happy birthday to Phoebe, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, yes, but... One of the reasons why I'm interested in this is that point of like, is there a ghost in the machine? Because as part of the the press for this season, now like the actors are still not, they're not back. So yeah. they're not doing interviews. Um, Michael Waldron was credited as the creator. He still is in the credits. He created this Loki for television. He wrote a lot of the first season during his time as like Marvel's guy. He did a big rewrite of Doctor Strange. He's involved with the upcoming Avengers movies. He is not involved in this season, uh, at least as far as we know. We don't actually know who's involved in Mud, but he he's no longer the credited uh, writer. Um, Eric Martin, who worked on the first season, I think is getting a lot of the credit and sort of presumably as the head writer. The reason I keep saying head writer and I keep saying presumably is because the Mar- the mighty Marvel method of making TV is very odd and is not in keeping with what a lot of people expect it to be. From the beginning, people have understood that, that Marvel never wanted to call anyone showrunners. Mm-hmm. I think that they've bent on that a little bit. But from what I have heard, even the shows that have showrunners, the showrunners or the head writers do not have final cut. Like, they are not in the edit. They, maybe they are in post, but they are certainly not the last people to touch the show. Right. Like, all these things are crafted internally by Marvel. And it was a little, I don't know, gave me a little bit of heebie-jeebies when I saw some interviews. And again... The Writers Guild strike was ongoing, which may have affected this or may have affected Eric Martin's ability to do press for the show that he worked on. But there's interviews like on Collider and other places like that where the where Kevin Wright, who is the Marvel development executive. Now, Marvel famously has executives in the room. Okay, yes, right. But this is it's the like guy who's- like the committee or whatever. Yeah, yeah and, and we've heard people- um, you know, in fact, we'll, this is, I think this gets detailed in Joe's book. I, I, and I'm curious to talk to her about this. So maybe we can table this broadly- for until later in the week. We've we've talked to people. Um, we had Malcolm Spellman come on. He was the showrunner of the Winter Sold Falcon and Winter Soldier show. He was saying that he liked having people from Marvel there mm-hmm. because you could bounce ideas off of them. They had a deep well of information, blah, blah, blah. But in these articles, Kevin Wright is basically being like, what a journey we've had. We've had total freedom from Kevin Feige making the show. You know, Tom Hiddleston and I have really been showrunning this from the beginning and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
So that's how it is in their family. What do you mean by that? Basically, the implication is that the Marvel staffer, the Marvel executive, is running the show. I see. He, uh, he, he referred to in an interview that he and Tom Hiddleston have been running it. Gotcha. That the final decision-making and the vision comes from the executive. Right. Obviously, as a, uh, you know, still slightly rabid member of the WGA, that rubs me the wrong way. But I also think it's, that is their process. And I think it's interesting to see that as we go from a show that we are giving all this credit to for being You think Tom Hiddleston is like, here's how time travel works? No, I think that Tom Hiddleston is like signing off on the decisions that Kevin Wright brings to him because he's the star and he is also an executive producer. I do not, he's involved. He's doing, (laughs) he wouldn't do it if he didn't want to do it. They don't make the show without him. But all I'm saying is, I'm just, I have an eye on this, not just for professional industry stuff, but also because we have singled out Loki as one of the Marvel projects that has an idiosyncratic point of view, that it has a, it has a, a look, it has a style, it has a voice, and it's possible. We don't know Michael Waldron. We don't know what went on. I'd like to talk to Joanna about this. Did Michael Waldron build them that template and then leave? And then now the executives are like, steering it back towards the mothership. I don't, because if you ask me, I'd be like, this shit is like Hotel California, man. Michael Waldron can't go anywhere because he needs Loki to connect to the next thing to connect to the next thing to connect to the next thing. that's how you end up back with the quote that was much maligned from Gwyneth Paltrow being like, I didn't even know I was in that movie. Yeah, right. But that's actually a feature, not a bug, I feel like, for the way Marvel makes things, where they're like, everyone's writing on everything, everyone's touching everything else, everyone's shooting stuff that could be for this or that because the project you're making is the MCU. It's not Loki season two right. at a certain, on a certain level. These are not new ideas or observations. I'll just put down my marker. I think that's a very, I, I cannot wait to talk to Joanna yeah, about this I, with you. This I just, is very, because this is new stuff. This is brand new material for me. I just, I liked Loki season one as a TV show. It feels already that the ceiling for my engagement with this is I will like it as a cog in the MCU. Right. Those are just, those are different. I'm I not would being see that. negative. I'm so, just saying so we're talking ceilings. Mm. There is no ceiling on Ahsoka. The ceiling was removed, but not because it's high, but because it's so low, right? For for my opinions about Ahsoka, you were like or? living in a like a little coffin. That's how your the ceiling for how good Ahsoka could be uh, was like very. Uh, oh, I was like, what's his name's uh, Rob Brydon's little man in a tiny box. <laughs> yes, when it came to Ahsoka, <laughs> well. I mean, I'm not going to relitigate it. I didn't watch the finale. Okay, I, love, I, I love force pushes. Okay, so, Seems good. Uh, but you are interested in Loki, but like only really more as part of like, what's the larger sort of storyline it's telling? No, I, I, I am not interested. Let me, let me stop you there. I am not interested in the Kang dynasty. Okay. I have no interest in a larger storyline. I'm saying that the, it just seems like the pleasures of the show have been curtailed. Gotcha. As it has, as as it is steered more towards servicing the larger, uh, what's it called the the sacred timeline of the MCU. <laughs> That's right. Right. Like first, I just thought the first season was good. It was on my top ten list. Yeah. Fun actors doing fun things. It was great. All right. Let's talk about fucking Tenerife and timeshares. Yeah. Let's go. Another episode of the gold, the penultimate episode of the gold. Mm. I would say perhaps a bit of a uh, award reel for my guy Hugh Bonneville. For real. For fucking Brian Boyce. For folks who, I mean, I assume that if you're listening to this part, you're like up on the gold, but we'll spoil episode five from here on out. It's essentially a real like the walls are closing in on our criminals. Although when walls close in on Mickey McAvoy, he just hires a helicopter to take him out of prison. A couple things I really loved in this episode. Obviously, Bonneville. Uh, really, really enjoyed Detective Stallings dueling with Mickey McAvoy's girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, really, really had fun with that. Mickey McAvoy's girlfriend is on one. She's a real, she's a real one. She's a firecracker. Naming her dogs after the Brinksmat mm-hmm. crime. Uh, and also just like her scene with Donnie the cabbie. Mm-hmm. And uh, just every, every, every moment with her, you know? She's, uh, is she in the Pantheon for you? No, like, like, I, the, the pantheon of just like is she just like you, of British women who will who will break he, you out of prison that you throw away your life for? Like is she just like no? Yeah, she she's up there with like Imelda Staunton, you know. That's an actress. <laughs> <laughs> is she is she on your pantheon? Is she is she drawn We're into about the mural? Sophia Laporta, who plays uh, Kathleen Meacock, 
Okay. Is, that's the name of we the sure character. Are. We're talking about her. Yeah. I just didn't know if you're, she's drawn into the mural too next to you and Elliot oh, Smith. Oh, me, Elliot Smith, right. And Mickey McAvoy's yeah. Hold It Down, <laughs> Ride or Die. Okay. Um, what did you think of the episode? I completely agreed with the first thing you said was that this was the the BAFTA reel. Um, I there, there's a there's a there's a thing that can happen like a couple episodes in where you're like, look, we know we know the ride we bought the ticket for, and so the entire scene, the the whole the whole construct of like Hugh Bonneville's character is like, I will go to Switzerland and get the Swiss to do something that they are just like literally. What's the one thing we all what's know the about point Swiss of people? Switzerland? <laughs> it's honestly, it's they, like chocolate. Watches and keeping fucking secrets. Yeah, and you will not know whose money this is. That's that's basically what they do there, yeah. and they're very good and at it. And he's just like, well, if you sit in this in this room, but we also, might accidentally mention the two main characters. But also, I just love the. It can go one of two ways. It, if you haven't, if you disagree with this on principle, you're going to find that some of the aspects of this episode were a little bit showboaty and a little bit like you know. But I think that we've now reached, clear, a, but we're, we're into it, and so him showing up. And just having a scene where they like choke down cold glasses of chilled fucking red and talk about what war means to them in order to extract a feeling of empathy and commonality to get them to betray their national point of pride. Look, I love it. Yeah. I thought it was a sick scene. Do you think that uh, too many people Mm. in this show Mm -hmm. have reached total and complete self-awareness? Mm. <laughs> like yes. where every single character is like here is the yes. here's exactly how I see myself within these rungs of society yes here's how I understand what English society does yes. to people like me here's why I did what I did because I'm English and because I'm trying to do this yes they are characters and they are cogs yeah they there's not a single person in the show who isn't like I am a, I am a person but what I really am is an exemplar of what it means to be English. Yeah. And I am grist for the mill. But even there's a scene where am... Cooper goes home to his wife and yes. she's like, I never understood what you meant about the boy, like the man who you used to be the and now I were. see you and the boy you were and now I see it in you. And it was like, that is very perceptive. But, but also, how about <laughs> how about when there's like, where are you from? And he's like, Fear. Yes. I'm from fear. That's it's like, right. actually, you're from a council estate in South London. You go there in the episode. And yeah. unless it's called like, unless that's the name of that place. Um, no, the, the the relationship this show has to metaphor is very interesting. Yeah. But it is about something, about something more than its plot. And the one thing that I think is a, an absolute undeniable plus that was uh, illustrated by this episode is Again, we don't know the historical record. I plan to read a great deal about it on Wikipedia pages beginning next week. Um, But I don't want to be spoiled. I want to know. It seems as if the historical shape of this case is not that thrilling after a certain point. I was going to say the exact same thing. And the show also seems to, again, we don't know. It does seem to have an interest in at least giving us keeping within the realm of recorded fact and possibility, not straying too far outside the lines. Again, could be wrong, but that's what it seems like. And so what do you do to kind of zhuzh out you the meal? You have people write essays about being English. And you put sauce and mustard on everything. Yes. And you make a meal out of it. And I am not mad about that. I think it is made for some riveting, entertaining television. It's given some great, it allows you to have great acting performances. It's made really compelling characters out of uh, Jennings and Brightwell, the cops who've been following from the, the the fly-in squad the whole time. But this was the episode, and maybe this leads into something you want to talk about, where for the first time I was like, oh, it's not really, it's not going to be that shocking. Uh, it's not that, it's, it's interesting, but it's not going to be that surprising anymore. And is yeah. this... Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how don't it know. ends. And, you know, you think about, say, um, the way cases on the wire sort of resolved themselves in ways of not resolving themselves, but in the lack of resolution said something much more profound about society. Yes. And the wire also dabbled with people having a lot of self-awareness and a lot of the wires about uh, the American city understanding of of the way that they fit in with the tapestry of the city, like what Mm -hmm. thread they were. I think you're right. I don't know that this case is actually like a shoot 'em up, you know? So it's probably a lot of people looking for a 24 notes uh, and so to fill it out, 
you get some scenes that are... That, by the way, so, so are all the indie filmmakers in America. <laughs> That's right. They're just looking for those A24 um, notes. You know, was was the is this the invention of timeshares? Like, I don't even know what we're watching with Tenerife. Also, are we ever going back there? I don't think so. I don't but, think so. I mean... But um, the wire point, the wire comparison becomes more and more interesting to me because... And let's say this again. We are not comparing the six-episode British miniseries to one of the undisputed all-time greatest television series. Um, but what is com- interesting to me is the ability that this show has demonstrated in such a short amount of time to uh, create a depth of character and a depth of society that has insight into a larger cultural national concern. Like this, like we're saying, like this show is just unabashedly about England mm-hmm. and being England and the project of being English. At a very English. crucial point. And like, yes. they'll just be like, look and, at Margaret Thatcher talking to Ronald and, Reagan about missile defense systems. And yeah. yet, it is limited its scope to six episodes about one crime that does reach from high to low and it's a well-chosen crime and it's well-adapted. It does make me think that Neil, Neil Forsyth with this cast and even literally some of these characters could have made a legendary six-season show about policing or society in Thatcher's England, and we would be raving about it in the same way that The Wire built this tapestry of characters and and brought its point of view and, you know, boots on the ground in Baltimore for all those years about made-up cases so that it could be about a city. Now, The Wire was based on things yeah. that had actually happened, you know, especially during David Simon's time covering the police force there, but it was fictional and ongoing. This is historical and um, and limited. And, you know, you get different results from that. I just really want to say that when she's like, Mickey's having a really hard time and the cab driver's like, that's the point of prison, isn't it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of the point. Um, All right. Well, I mean, we're obviously going to be talking about the last, the last episode. I don't really have like a... Did you... Jennings, your your other ride or die... um, uh, Nikki Jennings, played by Charlotte Spencer. Yeah. When she's just like, what's the guy's name? The art dealer who who, who just made a had one bad day. <laughs> the guy went to Lichtenstein. Yeah. When she's, what's the guy's name? Keith or something. Yeah. She's like, you ruined your life, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough talk. Yeah. That is tough talk. She's from a straight shooter, man. She doesn't. She's she does not speak in metaphor. Yeah. yeah. Do you think? I mean, on some level, I understand why. You know, you just can't stay. And a lot of the characters are like you, and that you just can't stay away from England, um, <laughs> despite rising viral loads and everything. Like you just kept going back. Um, is there another version of the show where they just just don't go back? Well, who doesn't go back? Well, I mean, everyone goes back in this episode. The goes one back. detective in Tenerife he was on it. Hunted down Palmer pretty easily yeah. at his at his timeshare. Well, he was he was on Front Street. What's up with Palmer's like? You get 500 quid for every timeshare you sell, but no salary. Did you see that part? Yes. I don't think I, I mean, it was part of the show. That, that's I, the I, podcast model. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? You're doing a lot of contract talk today. You trying to say something? <laughs> I'm just, uh, look, I'm always negotiating. I think negotiating. you have a pretty cushy gig. You know, you come in with your boy. <laughs> I got nothing but anecdotes for you. It's true. And, uh, and prep. You also have a lot of prep. Did you I think appreciate. I prepared well today? Yeah, you, you listen, you were at the karaoke bars till God knows how long this weekend. And you're I was still... out until 1 a.m. 1 a.m.? Yeah. What? That, that's when, that's when Kaya's sitting down to dinner. A lot of beers. But yeah. <laughs> how'd that treat you? They actually, when you stretch them out over that period of time mm-hmm. and you're, you're rocking out, it's fine. Do you think this is a sign of my Anglo, uh, my, my, my love of, of, of England? Mm. Or like just, low-key alcoholism that when there's you're, the police you're low-key al- alcoholism low-key, I'm, a, I just, I'm like I'm like an alcoholic but for Loki. Um, <laughs> that when they have the police sting in the pub in the gold in, in this episode last night yeah I was just like I, I wish I was there this afternoon just pulling a pint no I, I, think, I think you and I both crave big mugs the uh, the sense of um, warmth that comes mm. with a local and we all have that right now. How do you... At least shared between the two of us. How do you feel about that? the, the Freemason cop? That I don't guy? understand Freemasonry, and I think that the show has kind of fumbled the bag with that. Because it was implied in the beginning that that was like... I think the, Mason, the Masons mm-hmm. are the exorcist of this show, where it's like you're assuming people like know way too much about Masons. Or are Freemasons the Jonathan Majors of the show, and American Freemasons edited that whole storyline out? <laughs> Do you think that's possible? Do you, do you know anything about Freemasons? Be, 
Um, there's a handshake? Yeah. But like and the rest of my knowledge of them is informed entirely by the 30-year-old episode of The Simpsons where Homer joins the Stonecutters and they sing songs and there's an alien. I always forget that you have like a pretty comprehensive Simpsons. You know, I don't. I I thank you for asking about that. But as it wasn't really a question. But um let's how much time do we have left, Gaia? <laughs> Just that um Contractually. <laughs> Contractually. No, I think everyone knows that my preparation for the show involves watching the one to one and a half things you've asked me to watch, plus anything that my children are, are interested in. Are they and into The Simpsons? Where they're super into The Simpsons. So we've been rewatching. Has your older daughter mm-hmm. started saying, Don't have a cow man? No, that's, that's, that's first season shit. Okay. No, we went right into the good ones, the classic era. But she skipped all the like the catchphrases. Yeah, well, I think that even the sh- like the I mean like the ubiquity of like eat my shorts and yeah. like do you, do, you, do you think that they have like Calvin pissing on stuff <laughs> stickers on their lunch boxes? Are you like just this is like you're asking this sounds you know you're talking like a real Exorcist fan here you know like are your children me? <laughs> do your kids like Ren and Stimpy T-shirts? I never liked Ren and Stimpy. You didn't? Well, I just never had Ren and Stimpy clothes. Oh, because you had travel baseball. <laughs> <laughs> you were playing sports. I'm detecting a little bit of hostility. No, that's, you know? that, that's often that's often your answer. Yeah, I'm but like, like I, we share? I also just feel like Ren and Stimpy, like I was just like too old for it. Weren't you too old for Ren and Stimpy? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Goes home, burns, scrubs photo books. Crying. <laughs> crying the whole time. Oh, I, I just throw God. it all in my backyard smelter. Uh, Hopefully uh, the cops never find this. All right. I think we can wrap up. I think we probably should. Thanks to Kaya for producing us today. She seems she seems pretty happy about it. Kaya's always happy. Kaya's and we'll be back right. on Thursday with Joanna Robinson to have a broader conversation about the MCU. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll have a little... A little other stuff in that episode, you know, just to spice it up. There might be other shows we're going to watch, right? I mean, now that I've got you hooked on the morning show, don't you have to see how January 6th works out? For everyone. (laughs) In a way, we're all living that cliffhanger. Thanks for listening to the Watch Podcast. We'll talk to you on Thursday.